Good morning. Good morning. Um, glad you're here. Excited to get to talk to you a little bit this morning. Uh, you've caught us in the middle of a series on whole life discipleship. And uh, we've been tackling some big spheres of our life. Uh, we've been tackling uh, the idea of uh, a, a disciple within the, the church. Um, Kyle talked about a disciple uh, within the family and that role and how that should work. Um, we're going to talk about discipleship in work um, and, 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 and what it would look like for a disciple to be in the work field or in the workspace. Um, but this morning, I get a chance to talk to you about culture, uh, a disciple in this culture, which is kind of the umbrella of all those things. They kind of exist all, uh, within culture, um, but I think it's going to be good for us, good for our heart. Um, so the question that I'm asking this morning is, what is the role of a disciple of Jesus in this current culture? What is the role? How do I participate as a believer? How do I participate in this culture? How do we feel like this is going for us? We're doing good? Uh, do, you think, uh, do you see the church as, as really nailing this? We have a very clear, articulated strategy of how we live within this culture. How are we doing? How does, how's the Parks Church doing? So let's bring it home. How the Parks, how's the Parks Church doing? If pressed, if I asked you, can you articulate your strategy, your personal strategy, on how you, as a disciple, a follower of Jesus, interact, engage, work in this world? Could you just, with clarity, say this is how that works? Kind of confused, right? I, I feel maybe you're not confused. Maybe you're like, hey, if these four things are in place, I'm good. Life is good. We're doing it. But for me, I have to confess that I often, in this culture, in this time, feel confused. If at the least I feel conflicted as to what my role is as a believer living in this modern culture. As I try to discern how to live out a prophetic voice in these crazy times. And we live in a crazy time. The culture's confused. It's, it's kind of mad, actually. I, I mean, if you just take, for instance, the coronavirus, COVID-19, how we're handling that as a community, as a culture... Some are trying to ignore it. Just say, you know, I'm just staying out of it. Some are trying to deny its existence. Some are living in such complete fear that it's going to destroy their entire world. These are just observations. I'm just going to make a few observations. Is that okay? I'm going to try to stay neutral on this. But there's no unity in how we're dealing with that. A few years back, we went through and are probably still going through this idea of the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement is about eliminating sexual violence, abuse, manipulation within relationships. Meanwhile, at the same time, Fifty Shades of Grey was the best-selling book series of the decade. With the top three spots selling 35 million copies. Confused. The rise of, we've seen the rise of uh, gay rights in America. 
We've also seen the rise of the alt-right. Our country elected Barack Obama and then they elected Donald Trump. Those are two very different precedents. We've championed women like never before, yet we spend $4 billion on porn each year. Objectifying. Many in culture say racism is pervasive and systemic. And then there are some in culture that say we solved that years ago. The LGBT community says regarding sexuality, you are born this way. And that same community says regarding gender and sexuality that it's fluid. It's a construct. We're confused. Our culture is confused. There's just so many narratives, so many opinions, right? David Hasselhoff has a new single out. We are confused. <laughs> so dumb. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I know. We live in a mad world. We just do. We live in a mad, mad world. Take the inauguration of our nation's highest leader. Uh, Biden had prayers to uh, Yahweh, to God. He had Garth Brooks sing the national anthem, or not the national anthem, Amazing Grace. Lady Gaga there singing along. Trump in his inauguration had an unprecedented six prayers. How do we, how do we take that as believers? How do we detangle ourselves from a culture that often symbolically embraces Christian practices? How do followers of Jesus distinguish themselves in a culture that embraces some Christian practices, yet spews vitriol on other Christian practices? I want to give you a simple definition of culture this morning. Culture is what humans make of the world. It's what humans make of the world. Simple. What humans make of the world. But that involves all of our ideas, all of our worldviews, our institutions, our symbols, our customs, our practices. Some new, but many inherited, passed down. So what does a real disciple of Jesus look like living in this and all those things do we stand from afar and critique do we just simply withdraw away to our own communities or do we engage yes we absolutely engage you cannot make an argument that a Christian should be monastic and draw away from the world completely for their whole life. We engage. But we need a baptism of our minds, a baptism of our practices to know how to do that biblically. That's what I'm interested in. Ken Myers says, cultural engagement without cultural wisdom leads to cultural captivity. Cultural engagement without cultural wisdom leads to cultural captivity. I think many Christians are culturally captive. Captive by the culture's practices, the schedules, the rhythms, the tone. We're trying to swim in this confusing current, all the while being pulled in deeper and deeper. And we all are to varying degrees. We all are to varying degrees. We all have in our heads, even as I talk, I'm sure, um, we have 
in our heads ideas and how we should engage this culture. We have ideas on how to fix or redeem the brokenness that's all around us. But I'm not really interested in human solutions. I'm certainly not interested in human solutions that put a God title on it and say, this is what God would do. I want to know what he says. I want to know how he says to participate. So this is my prayer for this morning. That God would release to us a powerful prophetic imagination for what it looks like to be his beautiful bride in this broken and confused culture. So we're going to go to the scriptures this morning. And we're just going to go through several of of specific scriptures that I think speak to this that talk about how a whole life disciple might approach culture um, intentionally. Approach the culture within themselves, approach the culture within the church, and approach the culture at large. How to engage. So let's turn. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. And these are going to be on the screen. I'm going to try to go quickly through these and see what the scriptures have to say. Ephesians 4. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Not builds itself up in power, but in love. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. About this we have much to say, and this is a little snarky. It's probably Paul. Uh, About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Nice. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled, that's a key word, in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Unskilled in the ways of God. Unskilled in the pursuit of God. Unskilled in the the witness, testimony of God. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of Discernment trained by what? Constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is one of the reasons why in our practice groups we focus so much on the spiritual disciplines because they take our life and put us before the Lord constantly, consistently, constant practice so that we can know Him and then also be able to discern and distinguish good from evil because it's a confusing thing. Do you know what Jesus says in Luke 6? He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? (laughs) It's a simple sentence, very convicting. Why do you say you're a Christian and not do what I say? Hebrews 5. We just went through that. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. This is just 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. 
for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. A peaceful and quiet life. It doesn't say ambitious and influential so that we can maintain control or status for God's glory. It doesn't say that. We're being instructed. Do you feel that? 2 Timothy 2, verses 22 through 24. 2 Timothy 2, verses 22 through 24. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, along with your brothers and sisters. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, for you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind. To everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. We're being instructed. Do you feel that? You see that? Titus 3 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissension and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. James 4 1 says this What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Do you get what he's saying? Why are you so argumentative? Because of your own sin. Why do you feel so feisty all the time and ready for... Because of your own sin. You're not righteous enough to right all the injustices. You're broken within. A culture within. That's why you're so argumentative. Why, I, I, honestly, why do you think? Why do you think the church right now, just the larger church a, 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 as a whole, why do you think we're so, it feels like we're so tangled in foolish controversy? It feels like we're, we're tangled in conspiracies. It feels like we're tangled within stupid quarreling. Why, why, are, we, why are we drawn into that? I want, I want to give maybe one possible reason. I think over, over the last several years, we've experienced this distortion of where we as the church belong in a broken society. Okay? We've experienced this distortion of how we fit into the fallen world. The church wasn't ever meant to be the dominant majority but rather, as John Tyson puts it, a creative healing minority. This is the story of, of the people of God. God did not come on the scene and pick Rome as his chosen people. He picked the insignificant, unimportant nation of Israel. Helpless people. Weak. Sojourners. That's who he picked to display his glory. So as Christian thinking and ethics and ideas, as those become less mainstream in our culture, as those move away from the center, it seems like Christians are getting angrier, more argumentative, as if to, to try and and, and maintain this distortion that we've experienced of 
Christian majority, we've amped up the volume, we've amped up the intensity to try to course correct the posting, the rhetoric. It doesn't look like Christ. It certainly doesn't look like Christ under oppressive pagan Rome. Why are we so are we so angry? Have we forgotten that we're the carriers of the good news? The good news of Jesus? It's a different news. It's other. It's not like the world. It's different. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus has not asked us to force or legislate him into a resistant nation. He's never asked that of us. Show me that scripture where it's like, hey, you know, you need to protect your rights. Get yours. Where is that scripture? Can I push a little bit? Show me the scripture that, God's, that, that says that God's plan works better when there's freedom of speech. When there's freedom of the press, when there's freedom of religion even. Where is that scripture that says this is, it, you know, it, it works better this way. It's not there. So we have to grapple with that. Now listen, I am extremely grateful for this country and the freedoms we have. Um, they are unprecedented in the world and in, in the history of the world. Um, I, I, it's not lost on me that the fact that we can meet in this very room and have these big speakers up here and blast worship to Jesus is because of some of those very freedoms. Significant. And I will lament and mourn if those go away. But I'm just, I, I just want to make this point. That when blessings... When those, when those blessings turn to entitlement, we lose the very purpose of why they were there in the first place. In 1 Corinthians, Paul spends two whole chapters explaining how he gives up his rights. How he doesn't have to. He has Christian freedom, but he explains in two chapters how he gives up his rights. He says this, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Different story, different narrative. Doesn't vibe well. And then I want to land here. First Peter um, chapter two. If you have your Bible turned there, first Peter chapter two. 13 through 16 verses 13 through 16. That's what Peter says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. And this last verse, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Anytime Audrey and I bring our kids somewhere, whether it be a, a restaurant or somebody's house or even the gathering of a church, we have this moment in the car where we turn back and we go, hey guys, listen, this is how the DeFords interact with people. This is how we engage. We're respectful. We honor uh, adults. They're in authority. 
um, your pants stay on. This is, is it, so we have this talk that we give them. And it's like, hey, this is what we do as, as DeFords. This is what we do. And that's what Peter's doing. He's taking the church. He's taking the children of God. And he's going, look, I want to show you something. This is how you address and deal with people that don't believe the same as you. You honor everyone. And then he turns their head. And he says, the brotherhood. You love the brotherhood, the church. You figure out how to love and submit to that. Then he turns and he says, now let's look at the God who created it all. Fear him. And then one final one. He says, honor the emperor. Honor leader. Honor authority. He doesn't qualify it. Yeah, but I don't respect our leader. The leader he was most likely referring to is Nero. And Nero burnt Christians to light his dinner parties. He doesn't qualify it. He says, honor him. Yeah, but don't we need to stand up for our rights? I mean, don't we need to stand up and not be doormat? Jesus certainly wasn't a doormat, but what did he do at the cross? He laid his life down, and then his invitation is what? Pick up your own cross and follow me. Lay down your life. Lay down your rights. You can't twist that. Honor everyone. Here's the good news. Peter doesn't start there. That's not like chapter 1, verse 1. This is in chapter 2. And right before that, he starts with something else. Identity. And you need to know this about Scripture. Scripture always starts with identity. It never starts with command. It always starts with identity. This is who you are. And what does he say? What what does Peter say? Or rather, God say, we are God's people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood set apart from God. You're a people of his own possession. You're his kids. You're his children. Identity. Identity always comes before Your identity determines your activity. I'm Audrey's husband. I, part of my identity is her husband. So that changes how I interact with other people, specifically other women. I'm her husband. My identity determines my activity, determines how I act. The identity that many call themselves Christians. They identify as Christians, but they don't act like Christ. They don't sound, they don't have, the, they don't have Christ's tone in their speech. They don't possess his instincts. And I think it's ultimately because they don't know him. And when you don't know him, you end up projecting yourself onto him. It's a quote from Tim Keller. You've probably heard it, but... If your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. This is author Anne Lamont. She says this, You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) We're confused.
not only is the culture around us confused, but I think our Christian participation seems confused. So I want to take, I want to take a second. I want to highlight some traits of Jesus. And we could highlight all of them, and they would all be helpful. But I just want to highlight a few for us this morning that I feel like help us in this moment, in this cultural moment, in this time. Okay? So these are traits of Jesus, and ultimately, these should be traits of the disciples of Jesus. How a whole life interacts with the culture around them. The first one is this. Gentle and lowly. This is a trait of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon points out that in all four Gospels, in 89 chapters of text, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. It's Matthew 11, and, and, and you know it. Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden's light. And then he says, because why? I'm gentle and lowly in heart. He could have said anything. I'm powerful and sovereign. I'm joyful and generous. I'm boundless and impressive. And all of those things would be right. But he chooses gentle and lowly. Humble. Meek. There's a few other places in the New Testament where that appears. The meek shall inherit the earth. The gentle. The ferocious creator of the heavens and the earth. The controller of the cosmos. Describes himself as gentle. And lowly in heart. We would expect such a. I think such a powerful holy God. To be probably more severe than that. Right? More sour to our disposition as weak sinners, but he's kind. He's loving. He's accessible. His forgiveness and mercy stand ready and willing. He does not begrudgingly love us and put up with us, but he truly loves to love us. Dane Ortland says Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because it's like the weight of a life preserver on the shoulders of a drowning person. You get that picture? That's the weight of his goodness, his yoke, his a life preserver around our necks. He says, come to me and dump the ruin and wreckage of your life into my lap. John Calvin wrote this, Christ is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive. He's gentle. He's kind. I, I want to read this. This is, um, Dane Ortland's book is, is called Gentle and Lowly. And I think Kyle and I agree, this is probably going to be a Christian classic one day. It's so good. It's new. But it's so good. He says this. This is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. The God revealed in the scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and startled us, startles us with one whose infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. Indeed, his perfections include 
his perfect gentleness. It is who he is. It's his very heart. Jesus himself said so. And this is how he treats us. So this is how we get to treat others. We're free to treat others with that same gentleness. He's scandalously compassionate. He's scandalously compassionate. He's a friend to sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. These were his people. This, this was scandalous, the people that Jesus spent time with. His relatively short ministry. He wasn't trying to influence the influencers. But meal after meal he spent, meal after meal he spent with the needy, the spiritually sick, the lonely, the outcast, the despised. And, and they considered him their friend, his compassion. In other words, they felt comfortable around Jesus. They felt accepted and known. I love this. They, ex- they experienced his enjoyment of their company. He enjoyed being with them and they felt that. He didn't make people feel like a project, like an issue to be solved. But they felt enjoyed by Jesus. They felt his compassion. His compassionate heart, again, confounds us. Our intuitions about how a holy God should interact with weak and needy people, right? Just That's just not how I would write it. He's ready to forgive. Like John Calvin said, he's infinitely ready. Ready to forgive us uh, for showing partiality to some and not to others. He's ready to forgive our tendency to be compassionate only when it's convenient or we have something to gain by it. When we truly catch a glimpse of his compassion, we can't help but pour out compassion to others. So if you find someone who is not compassionate, there's a good chance, if they're a believer, there's a good chance they haven't caught a true glimpse of Christ's compassion towards themselves. They don't know how to make that transfer. That that compassion begins to transform how we see everyone around us. Even those that we might consider our enemy. Even them. Even they could possibly come to know the friendship of God through our friendship and our compassion. Imagine that. The Bible doesn't say, tolerate your enemies. It doesn't say, well, just just try to ignore them. It says, what? Different story. Love them. Love your enemy. Different story, right? Different narrative. Doesn't vibe with my flesh. Scandalous compassion. Next, and I think this one's huge. Huge. He carried a non-anxious presence. This was Jesus. He carried a non-anxious presence. When was the last time you were not anxious? Do you remember that with your job, with your family? Can you even recall? Or do you? We love anxiety. It's a warm blanket 
We do. We live in it constantly. What's next? What am I going to do? How's this job going to work out? What are my family? Da, 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 my kids. We just live in this constant state. People want to follow a non-anxious person. Fire starts in here. And I'm up here. We're all going to die. Oh my gosh. I'm running back and forth, running back and forth. The naps are over here going like this. Hey, this way. This way to safety. This is the door. Who are you following? Not me. You are. Because we love to follow, especially in times of confusion, a non-anxious presence. Jesus was never in a hurry. He was never rushed. He was always present. We don't, we don't even respect people that aren't in a hurry. Lazy, not doing anything with their life. We just, we love hurry. It means something to us. To be a non-anxious person, we must take our fears and anxieties to an inexhaustible God. If, this, if you're going to survive. <laughs> we go to that hidden place, solitude, silence, and an exchange happens. We give him our fear and anxiety. And he doesn't just go, okay, I got it. But he takes it and then he gives us his peace. An exchange happens between us. When we take our anxieties anywhere else, we can only have a human exchange. If you take your fear and anxiety anywhere else, you can only have a human exchange. Inevitably reflecting back some of the same fears and only further solidifying those realities in you, in me. The echo chamber of uh, the 24-hour news cycle. Social media do this best. Folks, it's because this these systems are designed to keep you coming back. They'll send you information and ideology that it knows you already believe in. When you go to God first, in prayer and solitude, you will receive His peace. When you go to the echo, these other echo chambers, they mirror back to you the very anxieties and fears you were feeling in the first place. You will remain in this cycle until it's broken. When you go to God, when you get in the quiet place, when you break away from these patterns, you remove the domino of the anxious direction of your life. You move that out of the chain and it breaks that cycle. That going to God with your anxiety unshackles you from cultural captivity. But nothing else will. When a believer receives God's peace, though, it's not just for a moment, but it actually transforms you. It renews your mind. His peace transforms you and gives you the mind of Christ. You get the mind of Christ when you spend time in his presence. And the more you have the mind of Christ, the more you can show his way to others. You'll begin to reflect back the mind of Christ to your spouse, your husband or wife, to your kids, to your coworkers, 
you, you won't reflect back to them the fears and anxieties. When someone comes to you with a fear, you're not going to be like, yeah, I know. You'll be able to reflect back the peace of God. That's what our culture needs. They don't need people that agree with them. They need that pushes on them and says, this, there's a better story. There's a better narrative. There's a better way. And it's Jesus' way. And you can actually give up your anxieties and fears. But you have to go to him. As a disciple of Christ, you can be a non-anxious presence that others want to follow. A whole life disciple of Christ is not marked by anxiety, but by peace. And then uh, one more, wisdom. Jesus was wise. He didn't just make wise decisions though, right? He actually was wisdom embodied. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. He actually is Wisdom. I've not met many people that don't want to be wise rather than foolish. We all want to be wise. Nobody wants to be considered a fool. Foolish. But the wisdom of God doesn't always line up with the wisdom of the world. You feel that, right? The wisdom of God actually sometimes seems like foolishness, right? The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Better to give than to receive. If you want to gain your life, you should lose your life. That just doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense to a watching world. So the wisdom of God is something different. It's something other. So as Christians, we can't look to the world and measure our life against those standards. We do this way too often. And the outcome is that our lives aren't distinguishable to that of our non-believing neighbor. There's no difference. We have the same pursuits, the same tone, the same anxieties. We just share and that's that captivity. So godly wisdom is on a different value system. And to get wisdom, we have to get Christ. If you want discernment and understanding, you've got to go to the word. And you've got to discern and understand the word first. The men of Issachar. It's a brief couple verses in Chronicles that, that talk about the men of Issachar. These are men that have come up under David. They are, uh, they are wanting to follow him. They're one of the 12 tribes. And it says two things about them. It's like two sentences. But they understood. It says the men of Issachar understood the times. They were able to perceive what's going on. And then they understood how Israel was to engage. So they knew what Israel needed to do. They understood the times and they knew what Israel needed to do. I want that wisdom. Moses said later of the cities that the men of Issachar built, he said they were strong ass cities. He said, well, he technically said that they were like a strong ass. But that's how he described the cities that these men built. These men and women built, they were strong, they were powerful, they were influential, they had wisdom. <laughs> he said, this, and this is, this is also true, in the time of Jesus, the Sanhedrin, one of the sects of the religious people, the wisest of them were from the lineage of Issachar. They were wise, I want to be wise. But we can't be wise unless we are with God. We are in his presence. So I want to get really practical. 
Um, I want to show you this, this graph, this wisdom pyramid. I like graphs. This is a cool one. Um, take a picture of this. You might have seen this, but this is from Brett McCracken. And this gives us maybe a real practical way to think about wisdom. The base, the foundation is the Bible. This is what we have to go to daily. It's our daily bread. This is where wisdom is found. Next, it says the local church. You have to do that within community. You can't just isolate yourself and hope to think well, live well. Now, what is that? It's, it's embodied rhythms of worship. It's wise peace people in physical place. It's proximity. You have to have proximity with people. You have to be known. You have to know. Time-tested theology, wise people in Christian history, continuity, the Bible, the Christian community, nature and beauty. Despite what Kyle said last week, you should go camping. <laughs> Despite the, nature, beauty, this is where you get to be enamored with the beauty of God. The mountains, the ocean, the trees, they all worship Him. They all sing out loud His glory. And goodness, and if you're disconnected from nature, you're probably going to be dis- disconnected from an awe and wonder. Books. More old books than new. The classics. Mere Christianity. The celebration of discipline. There's so many Puritan prayers. There's so many classics. Those are then next. Then we have the internet. That second one, focus on trusted sources. Don't just go Google something. Prioritize content recommended by wise people. Seek wise counsel even in your searching. And then way, way up at the top. Social media. Learn to live without it. That's a really good one. Use it really sparingly. I, I want to be honest though. For you, is, is this flipped? When was the last time you, you, did, you dug into scripture truly? And when was the last time you got on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram You know, often what you see last is actually most formative to you. So what you're before shapes and forms you. Christians, we need to flip that and make sure that that it looks like this. I don't know if this is happening. The next one, um, this is from Tim Keller. Christian decision making. This is really, really important. Christians have to be good at asking questions. We don't just go with our instinct. We have to ask questions. So when, when you're making a decision about life, about anything, this is a great framework. Does the Bible allow it? If the answer is no, don't do it. If the answer is yes, you ask another question. Does my conscience allow it? If the answer is no, you don't do it. If the answer is yes, you ask another question. 
And this is what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. He had all these rights to eat this food, do this, but is, should I use those rights or should I give up those rights? Should I exercise my freedom? So then, you, then these are the questions we have to ask ourselves. Will it have a bad effect on other believers? If it has a bad effect on your community of believers, a bad effect, you shouldn't do it. It's a great rule. Does it have a bad effect on non-believers? If it, has a, if it ruins, if it sours, if, it's, if it makes a stumbling block to your non-believing friends, you shouldn't do it. It's not, it's not about you. It's not, honor everyone. Will it have a bad effect on my Christian growth? This could be a neutral thing. This could be that. Will it be distracting for me? Will this hobby, will this relationship, will this job, will this take me, distract me? Will I, if, if I build out my schedule jam-packed, will that keep me from Christian growth? If the answer is yes, then you don't do it. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There's criteria. Is this helpful? This is helpful for me. It's confusing out in the wild. My last thought, and and I'll go fast. Culture creator. He's gentle and lowly. He's scandalously compassionate. He's wise. Created culture. Andy Crouch in his in his book, Culture Makers, or Culture Making, he says this our call is not to critique culture, but to create it. And we do this in really simple ways. You need to look down at your hands. You need to say, What's in my hands? What's right in front of me? Chances are, it, it might be at first, it might seem mundane or insignificant. Sometimes that deters you and you abandon that track. I need something exotic. I need something radical. I need something funny that Andy Crouch says is being, having a radical witness is actually really easy. You know what you need to do? Give 10% of your money and, and stop watching as much television. If you do those things, you'll actually have a radical witness in your community. Believe it or not, I think that's kind of funny and probably really true. So it might seem mundane. It might seem insignificant, but that's okay. That's actually how it should be. There is no scripture that says go and fix the whole world. Or go be a hero. Go be a rock star for Jesus. The louder, the better. The more influence, the better. Again, those are worldly metrics. You know, I think we watch, uh, I think we watch too many movies. I think we watch, we, we're like ever before entertainment, streaming obsessively, watching the, the latest movie. And you know what it does is it forms us. It shapes us. And we actually, the hero narrative starts to weave its way into the Christian narrative. And we think that's, that God wants us to be his key player. And he's going he's gonna to take you to the top for his glory. There's only one hero in this story. It's Jesus. We can't handle being a hero, actually. We deal really poorly with fame and notoriety. But Jesus 
is excellent. He deserves it all. He can absorb all of that without it altering his character, his motive. He's pure, he's perfect, and he is the hero. It's him that's making all things new. He doesn't say, okay, now you guys go make all things new. He says, I'm making all things new. I'm building my church, and I'm making all things new. And he invites us in. He invites us in, but I think it doesn't always vibe with us. It doesn't always look like how we think it should look. And we just constantly need this fresh understanding of our role. This is a quote from Henry Nouwen, and I think it kind of gets at it a little bit. We are not called to save the world, solve all problems, and help all people. But we each have our own unique call in our families, in our work, in our world. We have to keep asking God to help us see clearly what our call is and to give us the strength to live out that call with trust, with faith. Then we will discover that our faithfulness to a small task is the most healing response to the illnesses of our time. You, you each have a purpose. We each have the gifts of God. He pours out generously his gifts to us. He's given you all unique personalities, unique perspectives, and he's given you a place in the world. You should receive that with gladness. It's good. You don't need to be anything other than who God has made you to be. But it's often that it's, it's found in the mundane day-to-day stuff. And that's how he forms you and shapes you. That's how God changed the world with just a few people. What's in my hands? What does God call me to do right now? And here's the good news. We get to do this together. He doesn't just send you out and go, here, you do that, you do that, and hopefully this all comes together. He says, I'm going to send you out two by two. I'm going to send you together as the church. You get to deal with these questions, the tension, the frustration, the confusion. You get to deal with that together. And that's really good news. So to take it back to John Tyson's idea of the creative healing minority. I want to leave us with this definition. A creative minority seeks not to propose a way to regain cultural dominance. Take back our world for God or revisit an unrealistic and nostalgic past. It humbly proposes that if we take on the posture and identity of a creative minority, we may rekindle the light in the bushel. And in doing so, and in so doing, cast a hopeful glimmer on the world. A creative minority paints a compelling picture of the way the church is called to participate in these challenging and demanding times. Seeking neither to control nor abandon the world, but to love it to new life through redemptive participation. Isn't that good? Love it to new life. That's your, in culture, as a whole life disciple, your job is to love it to new life. And I can't tell you exactly what that's going to be. That's why we have to be people of the Spirit. But if you are disconnected from the Spirit of God, you will be disconnected from His vision, His strategy for what it means to live in the world. You will not know. You will be confused. You'll be tossed to and fro by the winds of doctrine, by by deceitful schemes. You'll become very argumentative. 
You'll have a lot of angst. You'll, you'll have a lot of anxiety. So we get before the Lord, before the Lord and we ask him. And so that's, that's your role. That's my role is to get before the Lord and say, what's in my hands? What have you called me to do today? And he'll give you that. He doesn't say you're going to go on to do this, this, and this, and this, and this, because you'd screw it up. I'd screw it up. But he gives you today. He gives you your daily bread. So may our, may our bread be that of the word and not of social media, not of the news, but of his news, the good news. And then let us be compelled to live out that good news among our brotherhood, sisterhood, among those that don't believe like us, that we honor everyone, that we love everyone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first and foremost of, for Jesus, not only his example, but his miraculous resurrection and conquering of sin, hell, death. And then you, that's a bridge for us to know you and to be called your sons and your daughters. You've given us a new name, a new identity. You've written it on our hearts. We're yours. We're a people for your own possession. And because of that, we have a new identity. Because of that identity, we act differently, God, and we need your vision. I, I got to know what you, have, what you have to say. I got to know. My, my ways are just broken and they're tired. So God, may the Parks Church be this. May the Parks Church be a people ever before you. May we be like the men and women of Issachar. May we be wise and discerning. Not to be discerning, but to know you, to experience you. Keep us close, God. Keep our hearts soft. Keep our hands open. Give us the mind of Christ, the peace of Christ. Let us be a non-anxious people. We love you and trust you, and we trust the relationship we have with you. We trust that you love to forgive us. We trust that you're abounding in steadfast love. And we live within that. That's our home. So God, give us the strength for this day, this week. In your name we pray.